This is HPR episode 2150 entitled Apollo Guidance Computer and is part of the series Interviews. It is hosted by Ken Fallen and is about 73 minutes long. The summary is Francois Rottenbach tells us how he is hacking 50-year-old computers. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hi, everybody. My name is Ken Fallon, and you're listening to another episode of Hacker Public Radio. I have got an awesome interview for you today. Um, back some time ago, I was um, introduced to... Everybody can remember the Apollo missions to the moon. And uh, I came across this uh, website, <laughs> thankfully provided by his brother, and I came across the opp- had the opportunity to interview... Francois Rothenberg, is that right? Rothenbach? Um, Rothenbach, yeah. Okay. Francois, mm-hmm. you're uh, calling in from South Africa at the minute. That's great, yes. So um, you um, have put together on your YouTube channel, links in the show notes, some excellent videos on the Apollo Guidance Computer. Can you just give us a brief overview about what the Apollo Guidance Computer is and why it was built? Um, yes, Ken. Um, so basically, um, f- f- about two years ago, I started uh, reading up about the Apollo Guidance Computer, and I got some really interesting information about it. You know, we uh, we grew up with this idea that the Apollo Guidance Computer was uh, uh, no more powerful than a programmable calculator, and I found out that it was completely wrong. You know, this this was a real computer. It wasn't that fast. It didn't have that much memory, but it was quite powerful. Um, and the, the purpose of the Apollo guidance computer was basically to, uh, first of all, navigate the astronauts to the moon, uh, in the command module. And then there was a second Apollo guidance computer in the lunar module. And that, that was actually the primary purpose for it to actually land on the moon. So the, the guidance computer took the lunar lander through all the phases and, um, you know, sort of braking phases and descent phases, uh, all the way almost right up to the point where it landed on the moon. Um, right at the, the end, uh, Neil Armstrong actually took over uh, manually and physically landed the lunar module, but the computer could have landed it as well. Um, they just preferred to to do that last step uh, uh, under sort of manual control. So the, the, the Apollo guidance computer was was quite important. Um, it was the one thing that made it possible for them to actually land on the moon. Without that, um, they wouldn't have been able to do that. So what did it actually control? The thrusters and uh, orientation to- and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, all all of that and more. Um, I think you know if I if I quickly uh, go back, but the the Apollo guidance computer had something like over two hundred inputs and outputs, so it was monitoring not just uh, sort of uh, uh, 
uh, alignments and 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 uh, the position the uh, sort of geospatial position of the the craft but it was monitoring all sorts of pressures and sensors and um uh, and it controlled all the thrusters uh, for instance the lunar module itself um had four sets of four thrusters around the uh, uh, the lunar module so there's 16 thrusters just around the the, uh, the module just keeping it upright and then there was the main engines and then there was sort of gim- uh, uh, gimbals that that had to be monitored and uh, engines that had to be sort of uh, moved slightly to to change the the, the center of gravity uh, of the thrust and so there was a whole bunch of things that it had to monitor and control um and it was all from one um computer basically and it presumably had some sort of gyroscope to keep it yeah, level yeah, yeah. and centered yeah that's right yes so the, the the gyroscope was was developed by MIT um in the 40s 1940s 1950s and it was uh, sort of an evolution and that's why they were able to uh, get the contract for the guidance computer because they had all this uh, guidance navigation thing already under control with the with the gyros uh, or the gimbals or, you know all of that um and they were able to to control the or to determine the position of a craft anywhere in a three-dimensional space. Uh, if you knew where you were, um, then you can actually get to a point, uh, you know, further on. Uh, I mean, if you if you were orbiting the Earth and you knew exactly where you were at that point, then you could navigate your position or your, your craft from that point to the moon. And that was all the navigation stuff that MIT had developed. And uh, the guidance computer was just a natural evolution to that uh, mechanical system. Wow. What what's a gimbal? It's uh, it's it's the the gyros, you know, um they they uh, they basically okay, this is a interesting story, but normally you would need three sort of gyros uh turning in in, in inside one another, you know, so you had three gyros in, in inside one another. And these gyros um, doesn't matter how the craft would move; these gyros would always uh, stay level, and they would stay in one position. So, giving um, you an X, Y, and Z coordinate, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yes, but there's um, sort of a snag there that um, when these gimbals, when you get to a certain point where all these the axes are aligned in in, in a in a straight line, and you would tilt, then you would get something called a gimbal lock. Uh, where these gyros would sort of just spin out of control and they would just lose their their alignment. Um, so you needed a, a, a third, you know, that third axis. Now with the uh, uh, Apollo guidance computer in, inside of the, the command module, um, they didn't have that. They they tried to save space and they tried to, you know, not do that. Um, so they, they they opted for a simpler sort of gimbal gyros kind of system. And um, it it came back and bit them a little bit. Apollo mm-hmm. 12, for instance, while it was taking off, it was hit by lightning uh, twice. And the batteries went down and the whole computer reset it a few times. And there was a chaos. They, the computer wasn't damaged at all. They tested it, you know, after the, the, the uh, launch. They tested everything and everything was fine. But they lost gimbal, uh, uh, the gimbal. Uh, the gimbals were the gyros was basically just spinning um so they they lost their position completely and they had to recalibrate the gimbals in space you know so the wow. from earth stations they actually had to find out where is this craft uh where's the position around the earth then they had to transmit you are over here and uh, re realign your gimbals and you know 
so it would know where it was basically yeah start start point x mm. and then that's right yeah. you would also need to know like where the earth mm-hmm. and the moon are and all variations of that o- over time that's as you're moving out mm-hmm. wow that, that is actually quite mm-hmm. impressive yeah yeah just to, to to give an idea of how difficult it is to actually fly to the moon um you know there's there's a company i can't remember the name now but they develop software to to sort of plot your route to the moon. If you want to fly to the moon, um, you use all their maths uh, and their algorithms and the constants that, that they've already t- determined. Now, there's over 5,000 parameters um, that de- uh, can affect your flight to the moon. So there's over 5,000 things that they need to know to be able to get you to the moon. So it's quite a complex thing to get to the moon. And if you if you fly from the Earth to the moon, then you don't you don't fly directly to the moon. You actually uh, aim at a point uh, in front of the moon, and um, you have to know exactly how fast you're going and how fast the moon's going, so that by the time that you get to that position, you're right in front of the moon. Now, if you if you get it slightly wrong, uh, you're going to fly right past the moon. You're going to end up in space and go and going on forever. If you get it slightly wrong the other way, then you're going to fly right into the moon. So you have to fly right in front of the moon. It's like, it's basically like run, running in front of a bus and just missing it, you know. And if you, you're passing in front of the moon and then the moon catches you in its, uh, uh, a gravity field and it slings you around the moon and then you just fire the engines one, once or twice and then you're in orbit around the moon. So you have to get it absolutely right. Um, so that's actually a, quite a, quite a critical part in the mission. Yeah, for episode 2000, I did a show on pointing satellite dishes and how satellite works. So mm-hmm. orbit is nothing mm-hmm. more than falling at the same rate. That, uh, so you're falling exactly. around the moon, but not enough to crash yep. in, but not enough to go away. So this is an amazing yeah. feat mm-hmm. of engineering from something. Mm-hmm. How old would this have been? It was 1966 it's introduced, so two years before yeah, yeah. I was born. <laughs> well, wow. well, the computer was the computer was actually uh, the first prototype came off the production line in 1964, um, and this is why um, you know I've had some 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 sort of uh, uh, discussions with people who said uh, you know the the Minuteman missile had the first uh, guidance computer because that was launched in uh, launched in 1965. And yes, it was launched in 1965, and the Apollo guidance computer was launched in 1966. But um, by 1966, the Apollo guidance computer was already working for about two years. Now. Um, you know, it was already in production. They had yeah, production yeah. versions, training versions. So this thing was around, uh, uh, you know, around since since uh, late 1964, and it was actually they had working versions of it uh, already as early back as, as 1962. Wow. So, yeah. Do, so do you was, remember this as a uh, I don't know how old you are, but do you remember this? How did you start become passionate about uh, what where does your interest in the Apollo missions come from? Um it, it's it's basically from 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 a few point of uh, uh, angles. But uh you know, I was born in 65, so you know, when the first missions went up, you know, I was really actually too small to realize yeah. that, you know, I just remember my day were there, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, listening to the radio and it was like, oh, they're going to the moon. You know, you're going to the drive-ins and, and you see these Saturn V rockets launching. So you grow up with these things and then they disappear. Then they, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that was it. And, uh, you know, my, my background is more into computers and, uh, you know, 
developing software and, and designing hardware and that sort of thing. And uh, at some point, you know, um, I started thinking back, you know, like, what was this about? You know, what what was the story there? And I, then I discovered there was a computer in there and that computer used integrated circuits. And uh, my perception of computers was integrated circuits is some, something that happened in the 70s, you know. Yeah, uh, my, yeah I was going to say it's, that. It's, I, I, I didn't you know sort of think that that uh, integrated circuits was used in, in 1961 to, to to build a computer and this computer had rom and it had ram and it had io ports and counters and timers and it could do integrations and uh, you know and, uh, all sorts of complex math uh, and it was around in 1961 so that that intrigued me basically yeah. okay i'm going to jump all over the place here as, as i think of questions but where surely the integrated circuits i mean there was a lot of development in order to get to the moon but that's a big jump to get integrated circuits from yeah. where were we you know i i guess there were a lot of developments with the v2 rocket but that mm-hmm. surely couldn't that didn't have any uh you know going from yeah, there that, which was at yeah, the yeah. end of 1945 to what 10 something years mm-hmm. later 20 yeah yeah yeah, about 20 years or 15 years at least later. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was, you know, that's also an interesting thing. You know, it's, it's like technology. You need, you need to sort of learn and get comfortable with, with a new sort of idea. You know, when the first rockets were built, I think about every second rocket exploded. You know, uh, you know, these things went off course. They just went crazy flying all over the place. Um, and as these guys started understanding how to keep a rocket, you know, upright and make it go up and not, sort of sideways um Bang, you know basically <laughs> yeah they, they realized that you know you need to control this thing you know you need to, to to take the engines and you don't really see that but those engines in the bottom they actually move slightly uh, so if the rocket kind of tilts to the one side they would just slightly shift these engines you know to to sort of push it back on onto its path there um, so uh, there's a lot of things that happened there and uh, a natural thing was to to have some kind of electronic circuit that could control this rocket and understand uh, that it's tilting over by a half a degree or whatever. Um, and uh, the one thing with a rocket is you, the, the thing you le- need least is weight. Uh, everything needs to be extremely lightweight yeah, yeah. because you can't lift a lot of stuff. And if you have to put a computer in a rocket, um, now you have to think back in the early 1960s. You know, if somebody talked about a computer, they a computer was something that occupied a room, a huge big room, and there was a lot of people working on this computer. Um, so when NASA said, "Okay, we need a computer in this rocket," um, those people they didn't think about a little laptop or a you know kind of thing. They were thinking like, "How can we put this room in a rocket?" Yes. Now, in fact. I've actually got a drawing where people drew this whole thing with uh, tapes spinning and printers printing, and this is all in a in a capsule because that was what they thought a computer looked like. You know, a computer was is it's it's really it's something that fits in a room. You need to put that room in a rocket. So MIT said, you know, they propose let's build a a, a miniaturized computer. That was the exact words they used. They said, can we build a miniaturized computer? And they started building this computer with uh, transistors. uh, And this computer ended up being like about four refrigerator size sort of cabinets. And they said, okay, can we fit this in a computer, uh, in a a command module in in a spaceship? Um, so one of the guys went to a meeting in another city 
And he came back and he said, guys, um, big problem. Um, these guys gave us one square foot to put the computer in. Wow. And, and everybody said, no, okay, we've got four refrigerator-sized <laughs> cabinets here, and we need to put this in one square foot. So how are we going to do this? And, and there was this um, program just before the Apollo uh, thing, uh, the Polaris missile project, and they wanted to use these really small new invention called integrated circuits in this. And they ordered these integrated circuits from Texas Instruments. But Texas Instruments, the process wasn't, you know, sort of streamlined yet. And they, uh, they built these integrated circuits yeah. with by hand, each chip individually by hand. They would actually etch the, the transistors and the resistors on the chip, but then they would take little, I think it was tin wires or something, and they would weld it onto the chip, make the tracks with that. So it was an incredibly slow process. And uh, Texas Instruments quoted MIT $1,000 per chip. And even at that price, MIT ordered 60 of these chips. Now, imagine 1960 prices, yeah. $60,000 for a handful of chips. Uh, and they were willing to pay that because they, they wanted to get this Polaris missile like really small. Um, anyway, Texas Instruments only delivered the, the chips about a year and a half late, uh, later in 1962, which was way too late for the Polaris missile. But by that time, there was also another company called Signetics. Um, uh, they've been bought out a couple of times, but it, it's, uh, they were the first to actually make, uh, commercially viable integrated circuits. And they built these really small chips and they said, okay, we can deliver these things for $40 a piece, which was way better than a thousand dollars a piece. So MIT bought, you know, I think about a thousand of these chips, if I remember correctly. And they started prototyping the Apollo Gardens computer with these chips. And these chips was actually ordered for the Polaris missile, but they ended up being used in the Apollo program. And this it, is why a lot of people don't know that it was actually used in the Apollo program. They were the first. Oh, okay. They, uh, it's amazing to think that they, it was only in 1947, at the end of 1947, beginning of 1948, when the first uh, transistor uh, appeared on the scene. That's uh, right, yes. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, uh, just over 10 years later, they had integrated circuits. Yeah, and $1,000 will be around $8,000 now in today's money. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. that's a lot of money for one. And it and had three transistors and four resistors in there. That's it. You know. Oh, wow. So, um, mm. paint me. Uh, so, they, did they manage to get it down to a square foot then in the end? Yeah, yeah. They did actually get it down to that. Uh, but it, it, it took a couple of iterations and, and squeezing it in. Uh, and, and they managed to get that it going. Um, I think the first, the first computer had something like, um, it was close to 5,000 of these little integrated circuits and they pack them really tightly. There's, there's some nice videos on the internet, on YouTube actually, uh, if you want to, to see how that was done. But, um, uh, they, they, they went to NASA and they said, we have to use these, this new technology and can we please use this? And everybody said, you're not going to get that past NASA. You know, they're not, they're not going to try the, the bleeding edge kind of technology and, th and they fell for it. They went for it. And the, the one thing that I want to, to, to say is that, it's because MIT used these chips and they tried these chips and, and the chips was like horribly bad initially. You know, every, you know, in a batch of 5,000 chips, they would find a lot of them that wasn't working. So they yeah, said, yeah, yeah. if we can get a batch of 5,000 chips and there's not one chip faulty in that batch, 
then we will grade that for space use. Otherwise, we're not going to use it for space use. So all these manufacturers, uh, you know, uh, went in and they tended and said, we can deliver batches. That's perfect. And, uh, they were all competing with each other to, to get this, uh, the perfect 5,000 batch of chips. And in the end, they had storage rooms full of chips that just didn't make it, you know, batch yeah. with one or two faulty. And, um, uh, you know, MIT would pay a premium for the ones that's like really good. And then what happened was, um, at some point they said, what are we going to do with all these chips in the storage room? I mean, we ordered literally millions of dollars of chips now and we're not going to use them for space use. And they said, well, let's force the, the guys building the, what they call the ground support equipment. Let's force these guys to use chips. Let's tell them we've already paid for this stuff. Here it is. You have to design using this. And, um, because of that, a whole generation of engineers, um, grew up designing with integrated circuits. And that is, that is a major thing because, uh, when these guys, um, you know, when after the Apollo program, obviously, you know, they went into the industry and they said, Absolutely. well, I know how to use chips. And everybody started using chips and the whole industry had been kickstarted by, by NASA who was, who were willing to pay a lot of money to get, um, you know, just the, the first batch, the first, you know, sort of prototype chips and evolve it and make it stable. So I, I believe that this is my personal belief that the Apollo guidance computer is, you know, that kickstarted this computer revolution by at least, it advanced us by at least five years, I'm sure. I'm, you know, listening to this and you hear like Velcro and stuff was not developed by NASA and Mm. You know, we should really give credit where credit is due because I did not genuinely realize that there were integrated circuits on that, the, how advanced those computers were until I mm. watched some of your videos. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So, okay, you got interested. What's your what's your background? You said you were working hardware and software. You some you have some really nice kit on your uh, in your videos, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, except my my power supply. I had a nice power supply, but that uh, sort of packed up uh, shortly before making those videos. So I had to go to a backup little analog power supply. But yeah, um, no, I I designed a, a sort of digital hardware. I'm not really an analog guy that much uh, more into the microcontrollers embedded microcontrollers that sort of stuff um so for the guys working with pic microprocessors or microcontrollers and the the atmel microcontrollers that's the sort of stuff that i use a lot um then i also write firmware um running on that and all the way up i mean all the way up to to even web servers and and network protocols and that sort of stuff so i, I try not to specialize too much in one specific area okay cool and so how did um so when exactly did you become interested in the apollo mission and and you know where did you go then from there um i think what what sparked my interest was um uh, i saw a book on 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 the internet at one point um it was was um uh, a book that explained the apollo guidance computer um i'm trying to remember the name here i've got it uh, sorry um it was a book by frank o'brien um, the Apollo Guidance Computer. Um, and that book was a very technical book and it explained in, in, in quite detail um, how the Apollo Guidance Computer worked uh, and, and all the different parts and, and, and pieces in it and, and, you know, basically how the software worked, the instructions of that computer. Uh, now, it's I, I bought it to, to actually read at night, you know, sort of 
before going to bed, but it's not really bedtime reading material. That that's seriously technical sort of stuff. So if you if you're in, into that kind of thing, um, uh, you know, it's 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 quite intense, and it shows you exactly how that computer was was built, and a lot of interesting things. And that that sparked my my interest in the whole in the Apollo thing. And uh, you know, one thing led to another, and you know, I ended up. Yes, yeah. getting hold Addicted of these rope memories. Yeah. But um, okay, yeah. so tell us what this rope memory is and uh, what part it plays in the guidance computer. Okay, so the the rope memory is actually like a ROM, like a read-only memory. Uh, I know you know some people think it's like a core memory. You get core. Uh, 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 memory, which is actually RAM. Uh, we've seen it a lot. It's been used even up till the early 1980s. Mainframes used core memory. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's if you see some really old boards with these small little uh, miniature cores with three wires being uh, uh, tracing through those, that's core memory. Uh, a rope memory is actually sli- something slightly different. Um, and it works in a very different principle as well. It works on the uh, the principle of a uh, transformer. So if you if you have a primary winding through a transformer and you uh, yeah. put a, a little bit of current on that, you can pick it up on a secondary coil uh, on that transformer without a physical connection between the two coils. Now the rope memory works in exactly the same thing, except that there's not just a secondary uh, uh, winding. There's 128 wires. Hello. Frank, you just dropped off there. Can you hear me still? Yes, I can hear you. I got. I lost you at, uh, there's 128 wires. Is that it? Yeah, that's right. So there's 128 uh, secondary wires winded through this uh, uh, core, this uh, transformer core. And if you pulse the primary uh, uh, coil or wire, you would actually pick up the signals in all the 128 secondary wires. Okay. Now, if you if you take some of these secondary wires and you bypass the coil, so you don't wrap them through the the core, but around the core, then they won't show any signals. But all the wires that's going through the core will actually, um, you know, sort of uh, 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 have a induced current uh, current induced in them, and you'll see a signal on those wires. And that's how they differentiate between the zeros and the ones. So the, the principle behind the, the core rope memory is that um, it's it's little transformer coils. There's 512 of these little transformer rings, uh, toroidal cores in, in a rope memory. And in a factory, this uh, that video on, on, on my YouTube uh, yeah, uh, yeah. video is, shows that quite clearly how these wires are uh wind it through these cores or around the cores and in the end you sit with uh, a memory uh, that's eight kilobytes um in size of uh, in, in the size of one module um, okay i'm gonna have just to, need to mm, just need to what sorry finish your sentence because i'm gonna yeah. need to explain this to people yes so you just need to pulse the right cores and then you get the signals the data coming out of that well, I 100% understand everything that you just said, but just to play devil's advocate for a moment here, for people who haven't seen yes. the video. Now, some of the, your videos are absolutely excellent, but the, it's a uh, it's a video, um, a black and white video take, recorded at the time, and it shows uh, ladies mm. with a needles. And to describe mm. it to the um, to the people listening, imagine a one new 19 inch rack with lots of holes in it. Literally as many holes as you can possibly put in a one new 19 inch rack. And they're threading a needle from one side 
right across to their part working partner on the other side who threads it back to another one right through and back so that is a, so a transformer in mm-hmm. in my mechanical right, yeah. engineering experience here mm-hmm. i'm trying to see if if i was doing an ac to dc or let's say uh, a step down from a um two to uh, what 240 or 110 volt let's mm-hmm. say 110 for our us listeners t- down to 40 uh, 12 volt dc for example i would have more coils mm-hmm. on one side than i would have on the other side that's how a transformer works correct? that that that's right yes so with the with the the cores um they actually don't even uh, wind it a couple of times through the core they only push the wire through the core once yeah and the, both the primary and secondary wires are just uh, uh threaded through the core once uh, and that's enough because you uh, you don't you don't want to step up or down or anything like that. You just need to put a 14 volt pulse on the primary wire, and then you're going to find that there's a maybe a hundred or a 200 millivolt pulse on the secondary wires, uh, and that's all you need to 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 see. So you okay? I'm trying to get my head around mm-hmm. this. So if I was to mm-hmm. if I was trying to write a binary one, for instance. I would That's put right. both of them through the core. That's right, yes. If I was trying and to write a zero, I would have the same wire going through, but the other wire not going through. Exactly, yes, yes. So I could so, then make up, build up a word, a one and a zero would be one of the wires going through and one of the wires not going through. Exactly, yes. So with 128 wires, on average, you would probably get 64 wires going through the core and 64 wires going around the core. Um, and there, there might be a little bit of variation on that, but um, that's the, the, the sort of general principle. And uh, if you pulse the primary wire once and all 128 wires, you're either going to, half of them might uh, be zeros, half of them might be ones. So the ones that's um, going through the cores will show a little pulse coming out of those wires. Uh, and the ones going around the cores will obviously not see anything uh, significant. Okay, so this would be, in essence, um, uh, something, <laughs> a USB stick, for, for want of a better word. Yeah. The ability right. to but, store but it, a program um, even when the power was off. That's right, yes. And these things, I mean, because it's physically wired, um, uh, like I said earlier, Apollo 12 got hit by lightning twice. And it didn't even damage the computer. There was no no damage at all. The computer worked perfectly. Uh, you try that with a computer today; it's not going to be. Uh, it's and not going to. The smoke is going to come out. And when when we say it's physically wired, I mean this thing was physically wired. It is uh, exactly like physical wire has been knitted. It's you've knitted in. So I just want to explain that. So they, at the time, we're talking storage of computer programs was done on ticker tape, on mm. if I'm correct. And in one of the videos, right, yeah. I saw they the computer program was being read out by a ticker tape machine, and that ticker tape machine was positioning a sort of loop um, for mm. the ladies to use as a guide where to thread this uh, ROM memory, rope memory. That that's great. Yes, in fact, um, I, this is another interesting story. IBM actually uh, competed with MIT. They said, you know, we can build a better computer, and uh, we don't believe in this integrated circuits. IBM actually only started using integrated circuits in the in the early nineteen seventies, um, but they competed with with uh, MIT, and they said we can build a smaller computer, faster computer, and they couldn't. Um, but IBM's solution actually consisted of a drum that was spinning. 
and uh, with a head inside of the drum. And um, they didn't have a rom. The the drum would spin so fast that, and, and you would keep track of where this drum was. So if you want to get the first instruction in the memory, you would wait for the, uh, you know, the index pulse for this drum, and then you would quickly pick up the first instruction. Yeah. And if you wanted to execute the second instruction, uh, you had to wait for the drum to to complete a full circle again and go to the second instruction. Uh, so it's like a hard drive in in in, in a sense, uh, but reading disc, the guess, instructions, yeah. yeah, and reading the instructions from from that and executing, uh, sort of on the fly. Now, obviously, that was way slower than than the rope memories, and also, you know, in a spacecraft, uh, you don't want spinning things and uh, mechanical things that could uh, damage, and also, sort of magnetic uh, drums and, and and so on, radiation and all of that could interfere with that. Um, so the rope memory was absolutely suited for for the space program. Wow, absolutely amazing! And you mm-hmm. got your hands mm-hmm. on some of this. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a, that's another story again. Um, yeah, about uh, was I think it was about two years ago. Um, I was I was sort of browsing on the internet and looking for Palo stuff, and I came across you know on on eBay there was a guy selling. Um, some of these modules. Uh, so I ordered one of them. I actually, uh, um, you know, managed to, to win the, the, the auction and got one of these modules. Uh, and that the module came out of the, what they call the disky, the display and keyboard device. That was the, uh, the screen and keyboard that the astronauts used to enter the commands and, and the, the data, uh, inside the command module and the lunar module as well. Um, so I got one of these modules that came out of the, the disky. Um, and I, st- you know, after I received the the module, um, you know, I got got into contact with a guy who shipped it to me, and I said, you know, "Where do you get these things? I mean, it's like this is pretty amazing. This is something from the the mid nineteen sixties, and I mean, you don't just pick this up." And he says, "Yeah, oh, no, you got a few. You know, bought it a few years back, and and um, um, you know, we started communicating, and he sent me some pictures of things that he had, uh, some modules that he already sold, and and things that he still has." Um, um uh, anyway so at one point he he sent me a photograph of these six modules and on the modules it said flight 202 now at the time I I had no idea what flight 202 was I mean it's it didn't mean anything to me so I started googling and I came across this flight AS202 the AS stands for Apollo Saturn now there was a flight AS201 that was the first Apollo official Apollo rocket to be launched and then the second Apollo rocket to be launched was actually Flight 203 because it was very simple and it was ready before Flight 202. So Flight 203 was launched second. And then Flight AS-202 was launched in on 25th of August, 1966. Um, and, wow. you know, I, I thought Flight AS-202, AS-202, uh, you know, it, it, it this sounds to me like the uh, and then I've, I googled some more and I found out that um, AS202 actually contained the first Apollo Guidance computer. So that was the first Apollo Guidance computer that was launched. It was an unmanned flight, but it was the first computer that was launched. And, you know, here's the, the six rope memory modules containing the software, you know. Where did that end up going? Um, well, um, I ended up... Uh, uh, Sort of reading up a lot about these rope memories, and there's there's lots of documentation on the rope memories. But you know, the problem is some of these this documentation comes from the early 1960s, you know, 1960, yeah. 1961, and you read that and it explains exactly how these things work. And then you look at a module and you say it doesn't work like that. It used to probably work like that, but it doesn't anymore. Um, 
So you need to sift through all this information and, and sort of filter out all the things that's not applicable. Um, and, and there was also the, the block two, the, the later Apollo guidance computer and, and that information is not applicable either. Um, so eventually I, I managed to find out quite a lot about the rope memories, how they function, how they work. And I managed to, to get a rope memory from the same guy, but not from the, the, the flight AS2 or 2-1, um, get a sample rope memory. And I played with that and I built a, a rope memory reader, um, just a, a little hack together device that would allow me to select the different lines and pulse the cores and get the signals coming back and record that. Um, and then, uh, is that the one in your video? That's, yeah, that's, that was one of the ones in the video, but guys, I also have the, guys, the, the two if, or two uh, ones in the video. Yeah. If you, uh, mm-hmm. when he says rough and ready, if you remember, uh, back to the future, the, <laughs> the famous <laughs> excuse the crudity of the diagram, these are laser cuss, uh, rigs and it's absolutely mesmerizing to watch. If you have no interest in this show whatsoever, <laughs> go look at that video because it's absolutely mesmerizing. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, uh, I've been actually been spending many, many hours sort of watching these relays click and, uh, sort of going through these signals. Uh, it's, I've spent a part of my life doing that. But, um, so last year, I've, uh, about a year ago, I flew to, uh, Houston, uh, with my rope memory reader, set it up in a hotel room. And, um, um, the guy gave me one rope memory from AS202 and he said, try and see if you can read this. I read it. I managed to, to capture the data from that. Uh, the rope reader wasn't perfect at that point yet. Um, I managed to capture like three quarters of the, the rope memory. Um, uh, but it was because of a software bug that I managed not, didn't capture the last quarter, the last 25%, but that was my, my mistake. Um, but I managed to capture, uh, most of the, the data from these rope memories. Uh, in the meantime, the last year, I've actually perfected my rope reader. Um, I've gone through the data that I've captured. And, you know, to, to give you an idea how, how difficult this is to capture, I tr- once just did a little sum to, to calculate how many combinations and permutations are there because you, you end up with a box of zeros and ones. You don't know what belongs where. Um, is this part of that? Is, is the address is sequential or you're jumping all over the place? Because you don't know. There's no documentation about this. And there was literally billions and billions and billions of combinations. So um, at some point last year, end of last year, I thought, ah, we'll never be able to get this. You know, this is this is the last case. You know, I've got the data, but nobody knows what the order is of the zeros and ones in this memory. Yeah. And then I got a few lucky breaks. And I've actually, I've recorded most of the video, but, uh, um, you know, over time. And I just need to put all of this together for the, the third video in that series uh, where I'm going to show um, how I managed to to find out what the address lines is. Where's address line 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5? And the data lines, there's data line 0 all the way to data line 15, 16 data lines. 16 data lines I've lost you after that. Hello? We may have lost Francois. One second. Hi, you're back. Yes. Uh, I lost you after that, yeah. 16 data lines. Oh, okay. Um, I guess uh, I think you'll probably have to cut and paste here a bit. No, 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 um, no. We don't edit shows. Some people do. I don't. <laughs> okay. Carry on. No, no, sure. Okay. So um, there's, there's, there's 16 data lines, and there's no documentation that tells you uh, what is data line 0, 1, or 2, or 3. Um, yeah. So it's 
I mean, it's just a wild guess. You you start at one point and you say, okay, let's assume that is date line zero and you go all the way to 15. Now, the same sort of, uh, you have the same problem with the address lines. You can't, there's no documentation that tells you where what is. Um, so I've got all this data and um, uh, I managed to make a few small breakthroughs uh, in, in, in sort of solving that problem um, which data line is which data line and uh, the address lines. I've, I've got another video. Um, I've recorded most of that, um, and that will be uh, on, on YouTube pretty soon. So uh, that's the third video in that series. Yeah. Don't want to give us a sneak preview or anything. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, um, one of the biggest sort of th- uh, discoveries that I've kind of made. It was, um, there's a guy uh, by the name Ron Berkey, which um, he he did a lot of work on the Apollo uh, um, f- stuff, you know, not just the guidance computer, but virtually everything about the Apollo stuff is on on his website. Um, anyway, so um, one of the uh, data maps that he uploaded to the internet showed that there was, um, you know, it's just uh, octal numbers of this rogue memory, um, and I looked at that and it didn't mean anything to me. And then around about the same time, I read a a reply that was written by uh, the first programmer on the Apollo guidance computer. Um, and he wrote something and uh, somebody said something in his book and he said, no, you're not 100% correct. This is the way it is. And he just elaborated a bit. And there was one little sentence. He said, um, he said, in the block two computer, um, things don't work like this anymore. And he, and he said, the checksum uh, in the block two now works like this, not like this anymore. And that little sentence actually, wow. uh, that was the, the thing that said, okay, so this is the way it worked in block one. And I looked at the code and I saw some values that didn't make sense. And I remembered this and I remembered the hex uh, dump that I saw from Ron Berkey's website. And all of these things came together. And in the end, I, I realized, you know, if I shuffle the data like this um, and all the the funny values, the weird values moved right to the end of the rope memory and everything started falling into place. So that was the, awesome. the key moment. Yeah. yeah. I I hope you had a good whiskey for that or at least a <laughs> nice refreshing well, beverage. <laughs> well, I didn't sleep that night. So, <laughs> yeah, that was quite exciting. Wow, this is this is unbelievable stuff. Can you tell us a bit about your uh, reader, How what you did and how you put it together, what this consists of? Yeah. So, um, yeah, when, when, when I started with the rope memory, I had a rough idea of how it worked and, and I knew that, you know, I'm going to experiment with it and things are going to change and I'm going to learn things as I go on. So, uh, you know, I couldn't build a rope reader that's fixed and, you know, sort of, um, you know, final. I had to do something that was, um, that I could experiment with. So I built these three little relay boards and each relay board had uh, 16 relays on it. And the relays uh, was wired in such a way that I could, uh, just using standard wire wrapping sort of uh, 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 wire, I could interconnect these relays in any kind of way. So the relays um, doesn't really uh, do any of the reading of the rope. So they basically just uh, route the signals through to the rope memory. So I need to sort of put pulses on certain wires and sense other wires. And that's what the relays do for me. Um, They sort of like a telephone exchange, they would route the signals through to the correct pins uh, to read that one specific bit. Um, so I built these three relay boards and I just 
the first relay board would just do the lower seven address lines. The next relay board would do um, the 16 bits, uh, would route one of those 16 bits through for me. So I can just look at that one specific bit. And then the third board had a dual purpose, uh, did the rest of the address lines and uh, what they call the uh, the core inhibit lines. Um, so uh, it's, it's actually a pretty s- uh, simple sort of system, but it allowed me to to, to experiment and try different um, sort of things um, until I, I managed to get the right data out of that. And it's still reliable? Are you getting reliable um, mm-hmm. data off it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't yet managed to, to capture the zeros and ones in a file. You know, um, it's at this point in time, it's it's basically waves. It's it's raw data. I can, you know, with the eye, I can look at the data. I can see that's a one, that's a zero, that's a one. Yeah. And I would write it down uh, by hand and uh, going right to the end of the memory, I could see that there's empty space right at the end of the memory. And, and, and that's also an interesting thing. Um, if you've done any kind of low level programming on a Pentium processor, you know that there's something called, uh, that you can uh, get a page fault in memory. If there's, uh, if there's no physical memory in that address and you try and access memory in that address, you would get a page fault. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, the guidance computer, Apollo guidance computer's got a page fault system. Um, the absolute end of a rope memory that, that doesn't contain any software. Uh, is actually explicitly uh, they made a fault in that memory and that the parity is incorrect in that memory. <gasps> so so if you jump into that memory, you would get a parity error and the computer would reset and it would just carry on uh, what it was doing last. So it had wow. uh, it had a page fault and that page fault, I managed to move all of that data to the end of the rope memory. I looked at that. I looked at the three bytes preceding that end of the memory and I could see the checksum byte called the bugger word. I managed to find that in there. And then the two words just prior to that is what they call the TC self. Now, I need to explain that. TC is a jump instruction or a go-to instruction in, in your yeah. Polygon's computer. And it means uh, TC self means go to myself, you know. So it goes into an endless loop. Um, and they they marked the end of the software with two TC selves. So... A jump to its own address, and the next instruction would also be a jump to its own address, and then there would be a, a checksum uh, value. And if they did diagnostics on the on the software, they would start at the beginning of the memory, run through the memory until they found a TC self, another TC self, and then they would know the next byte is a checksum. Don't read past that point; you're going to crash. You're going to get a parity error. Uh, and I found those things. They are in the memory. The TC cells helped me to to sort of find out what the data line order was. So I found all of that information. It is in there. It's uh, it's exactly as the documentation said it would be. Wow. Excellent. And you could then, knowing where you are, work your way back. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And, and in the end, you know, it starts all falling together, uh, coming together. Um, and I think we're there. Okay, so you meet a strange guy in a bedroom in the US. Then what happened? <laughs> yeah, so so I I read the memories. You know, I was I was quite pressed for time there. I only had a limited time there, um, and a hotel room is not the sort of best place. You know, the lighting isn't good enough, and I lost my reading glasses. You know, sort of going there. Um, 
misplaced them somewhere. So I didn't have my reading glasses and I was half blind, you know, bad lighting. Uh, then I had my soldering iron with me. Even if I took it up over there, you know, to, uh, we used to 20 volts, they use 110 yeah, exactly. volts. Uh, you know, it wouldn't have worked. So I had to go and buy myself a soldering iron. It was, it was really grabbing, uh, you know, sort of working in a non-ideal sort of environment. But I managed to read the data and the data that I've got right now, um, uh, well, the data that I managed to crack was, was based on that original data that I read there. Uh, and I've got a whole new set of data now that I will release quite soon. Did you get uh, any more modules? That, that was um, not the other modules, is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, um, th there were more modules. Um, so we've got the, the Flight 202. We've got the full set of six rope memories for Flight 202. Then there's uh, another set of rope memories from Flight 501. Now, Flight 501 was Apollo 4. And Apollo 4 was the first time that the Saturn uh, 5 rocket was launched. So that was in the Saturn 5 rocket, uh, uh, the, the Apollo uh, uh, 4 rocket, the, the Saturn 5. Um, so uh, we've got on the, the 501 ropes, we've got five out of the six. But, and this is quite curious, is the missing rope on a flight 501, we've got a rope with exactly the right number that should go in there, but it's not marked as flight 501. Ah. So that's a bit of a mystery. Uh, it, you know, what's the odds that there's a spare one and that spare one just fits into that slot, but it doesn't have the right markings. So yes, we have that. Um, the, the flight, I th I'm, I'm pretty sure we've got the full set of flight 501. I think that that other one, the unmarked one was probably taken out and replaced at a quite a late stage and it just wasn't marked. Um, that makes uh, makes a lot of sense, but we'll see when 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 we've captured that data from there as well. So I've got some of that uh, rope data as well that I've captured uh, at my t uh, in the time that I was in in, in Houston. Uh, I couldn't capture all of them. Um, it took quite a a long time to read the entire memory and and get all the, the data correctly out of it. Uh, so I didn't manage to capture the entire five or one uh, uh, rope memory modules. You know all the data on that, um, but I got most of that. Oh, very good, very good. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And then you know, I can add uh, to my surprise the the second last day that I was in in, in Houston. Um, the guy said, you know, come down. I've got something for you to have a look at. And I went down, and there was this big, big, big um, sort of container that I had to carry up, incredibly heavy container for me. Um, and there was a block two Apollo guidance computer, the actual computer, you know. And I happened, I, I'm, I was allowed to open it up and look inside and wow. measure it out. I pulled some of the modules out. I photographed everything. And that was the third video that I've put up on, on YouTube as well, just for a, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, the, that's, you know, somebody asked me a while ago, so how did that feel like opening up that computer? And I said, you know, um, it's, it's, I, I think I know how the guys who opened up Tutankhamun's cave and went <laughs> in and saw all the gold. I know exactly how that feels because when you open that thing, it's just gold. It's literally all the connections are gold. Uh, all the chips, the leads are gold. It's that thing shines. It's, it's pure gold. Amazing stuff.
Yeah. But you got a whole box yeah. of those mm. uh, readers. Where do they come from? Um, yeah, the, the, the ones that I've got is, is all from Flight 202. Um, so that's all the Flight 202 uh, modules that I showed on the video. And you bought them um, from eBay? Um, no, no, I didn't buy them. Uh, those are unknown uh, to me uh, um, just to extract the data from them. Right, gotcha, yeah. Okay. So I've, I, you know, uh, I wanted to do it last year. I couldn't do it exactly the way I wanted to do it. I needed some more time with it. So um, the guy, uh, you know, sort of agreed, uh, it's fine, you know, sort of, uh, and we, 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 we talked about it and he said, okay, as long as I ensure the shipment and it's like really safe and locked up and everything, uh, you know, I lock it up in the safe every night after I've done with it. So uh, these things are incredibly valuable. Um, and, and he allowed and, and, you to uh, take them just to so that the yeah. uh, code could be taken off for posterity. That that's right, and that's that's quite amazing. I mean, I'm I'm incredibly thankful for for what he's done and 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 the the faith that he had uh, in me for not not blowing these things up and burning them Absolutely. out, or, you know, you know, destroying them in any way. Uh, yeah, so that was well, that is uh, uh, that's that is to be commended. It must be said. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. And so, how did you end up in hospital then? <laughs> in hospital? <laughs> no, I don't get that one. The <laughs> oh, oh, you mean like that? Yeah. No, it's it's a house friend of ours, and uh, you know, I had these modules, and I was like, really, I needed to know what it looks like inside. I've got these videos, but I don't know if these videos is actually this thing. It looks like it, but I can't really say. And the videos doesn't show everything. <laughs> So I contacted the guy and I said, you know, if I fly down from Pretoria to Durban, uh, which is a one-hour flight, um, you know, would you be able to to X-ray these things for me? And he says, yeah, sure, you know, come through and and let's let's X-ray them. So we uh, arrived there, and then Saturday morning we went into his hospital and stacked the stuff up there, and it was over in ten minutes. You know, way too quick. Uh, you know, yeah, I'd love I to, know, I know. to 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 look more. You know, sort of turn them and look at it from every possible side. But yeah, we had yeah, all the information on, yeah, we needed. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was also quite amazing. Uh, absolutely fascinating stuff. Yeah. As everybody yeah. here on HPR knows, I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by this. But uh, mm-hmm. really, really, I had no idea how advanced their uh, their the the kit was. You can like you can see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the chips are, you know, yeah, uh, larger versions of what you have today, but you know, yeah, not yeah, a million yeah. miles from what you could buy on uh, on yeah. um, your local component store. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, if you if you look at these chips in the in the guidance computer, it's like you, um, like somebody came from the nineteen nineties, two thousands. And did a little bit of time travel and going back to the 60s because these are all surface mount components. They're not through hole components. They don't look like anything built in the 70s. Um, they're surface mount components and they weren't soldered. They were actually welded to that board. Um, because, uh, a solder was, was uh, sort of deemed to, uh, not, not reliable enough for space flight. So yeah. each component was actually physically welded to the PC board. Would that not damage the, the connector, the chip uh, itself? Not, no, no, not not at all. Because they, um, you know, the way they did it, probably the current wasn't flowing through the chip; it was just flowing through that uh, small track uh, where they had to to weld it to. So these these chips came with extremely long leads, and they would um, sort of place them on the PC board and then spot weld them to the tracks on the on the PC board, yeah. um, and then they would cut off the little excess uh, pins, uh, you know, on that. 
but it's, I mean, it's surface mount. It's exactly what you would expect in a computer today. If you look at it, it's surface mount components, and they were quite small as well. I'm putting photos and stuff into the show notes as I'm as we're going along here, so uh, people mm-hmm. will be able to see some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So where are you going yeah. now? You're going to uh, release the code and put in the third video that, up? That's right, yes. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, uh, I've got, well, I've, I've captured all the data from the rope memories already. Um, yep. The, uh, you know, the signals, uh, sometimes I need to put a little bit of filtering on it. There's some noise on some of the signals. Uh, what I also do is I capture the same signal, you know, X number of times and then I, uh, you know, average it out in case there's a glitch or a small little something that shouldn't have happened. Um, and then just going through that and just making sure that it's in the right order, the bytes, you know, are correct, uh, and, and everything's correct. And then I'm not, I'm not very good at digital signal processing. So, you know, that's where I'm going to stop with it. Um, I'm going to release all this data and say, okay, who's going to be the first guy to, to crack the, the first microcomputer software? You know, who's going to, who's going to, wow. You know, and and it's easy to see if you've cracked it because there's a checksum in the memory. Every one kilo words of data has got a checksum. So if you've pulled all the data out and the checksum matches, then you've got it. Cool. That is mm. that's just amazing. I'm uh, here looking mm. at your setup, and you've got the rope memory module wired up to the three different uh, boards. Mm. Uh, is mm-hmm. that a little computer there? A little Intel computer? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a little computer called a Red Pattaya, um, and it's a you know it's a, a, a it's it's a Linux based computer, and it's got two really high speed uh, um, analog outputs and two very high speed analog inputs. So I can I can capture up to 125 uh, million samples per second. You know, so it's it's effectively in a two channel oscilloscope yep. and a two channel signal generator for me. So uh, it was the ideal kind of thing to just put separately, you know, on a board that I can, uh, it's, it's a self-contained kind of system. It would read the memories. I connect it to the, uh, to, uh, to my PC uh, through a network cable or through Wi-Fi. And then I get all the data as it's captured, you know, being sent to my computer. So you're capturing the, the essentially oscilloscope, uh, output. That's right. Yes. And then so, you're, um, you're going to need to break that down into ones and zeros. At a... That's right, yes. So you, you see the waveform and, you know, with, with the naked eye, I can look at that and I can say, that's a one, that's a zero, that's a one. You know, I can pick them out. Yeah, it's but obvious. Somebody needs to write a program to say, okay, uh, yes, um, I can I can pick up all these zeros and ones reliably. There's, there's, there's one, and I have to, to mention that as well, there's one little snag uh, on one of the rope memories I found that uh, one diode in that rope memory is is a little bit uh, a little bit ill, a little bit sick. Um, so you get you get data out of that bit, but it's not. I can't even say if it's reliable. But fortunately, with that specific rope, because you have the parity, the sixteenth bit, uh, which is a parity, yeah, um, you can actually work it backwards. You can say what it should have been uh, if the parity uh, would match. I, this, so that, mem- this memory is yeah. nearly 50 years old now, and you're talking Next about one, one yeah. bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. This is this is what and you I mean, should be putting your family photos on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> an yeah, awful we, lot of knitting, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can end up with a lot. Yeah, I know, sure. I mean, uh, it's it's eight kilobytes per module, so you can just imagine you could probably put a low-resolution photo <laughs> on there. <laughs> wow, amazing stuff. Yeah. 
So, yes, okay, all I can say is you should be uh, hanging up and uh, finishing off this video because I'm fascinated to see it. Actually, mm. you know what I'd love right. you to do is just mm. point a video at that and start at address one and work your way the whole way through. I would have that as my screensaver and work. <laughs> I'll do that for you. <laughs> no, sure. Uh, um, no, no, you, think, you sent me an email mm -hmm. um, or you were saying that there was an announcement today on one of the mailing lists. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about what happened there? Yeah, um, I just received a, a, an email from Ron Berkey. He's the, the sort of main guy who's been driving, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, everything about the Apollo guidance computer and the other sort of computers used in, in the Apollo uh, uh, program. He's been uh, and the guy who, who got a lot of the documentation and, and uh, sort of sharing all of that. Um, he's, he's doing it without mm -hmm. any pay just because of it's, it's nice. And he, he actually sent an email out to the news group this morning uh, saying that um, all of a sudden we've, we've now got a lot of new things that, that came out. So, um, uh, he's, he's, uh, this, you know, initially we, uh, we had the Apollo 11, the lunar module code and we had the command module code, but it was all late kind of 1969 kind of, uh, uh code that we've got. And uh, one of the guys who wrote the software for, the, the lunar module landing, uh, the, the land, the, the physical code that landed the lunar module. Um, he had some printouts with him and it's amazing stuff that he had with him. And uh, they are now busy scanning all of this. This needs to be transcribed. So if anybody is interested in, in any volunteers who want to help transcribe that into a digital format, uh, we've got all these thousands of pages of incredibly interesting documentation and software that's all of a sudden became available this morning and we need to get this in electronic format uh, we've got a simulator for the the apollo guidance computer that ron berkey also wrote and we can out if we've got it all transcribed into a digital format we can run it on this computer and we can sort of see exactly how it executed you know we'll have the first code and of the code that i've extracted from flight 202 predates a lot of that code but um uh it's uh, it's part of the way we need to to make sure that the emulator and everything is working that's why we need all of this code um you know sort of converted into a digital format but all of that is all of a sudden uh, just this morning became available it's not even published completely uh, because they're still busy scanning it but it's it's going to be available quite soon Fantastic. We never actually said where the where the guy found the memory modules. Do you want to tell them that? <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, the most amazing part. Um, he was actually uh, 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 he knew a guy who uh, was a chemical uh, um, engineer, and this guy bought a whole bunch, you know, tons and tons of scrap metal from a, an auction, a NASA auction, um, to melt down and extract all the precious metals and so on. And um, he went by this guy's uh, storage facility and he saw all of this junk lying around there. And he said, but what's that? That looks like uh, an engine. That looks like, a, what is this thing? And it's got NASA. And he took everything that looked, that had the words NASA on it or that looked like some kind of electronics. And he ended up buying three tons worth of uh, scrap metal from this guy. Uh, wow. And it it was literally... It was days before this uh, bunch of stuff would have been shipped to, I think, Taiwan or someplace to be recycled. Melted down. Um, and he, that's right. 
and uh, he just grabbed whatever he could. He went home, he went back and he got some more stuff and he, and he brought as much as he could back to his home uh, and he actually paid for those things. Um, and it, uh, he's, you know, over time he started sort of uh, sifting through that and threw all the junk away and sold some of the parts. And then one day he realized he had a full, perfect Apollo guidance computer. Um, he had the, the real thing, the thing that the computer that was probably used to develop the software on. Um, he, he had that because it was just a metal box. You know, you couldn't see any chips, any circuits. When they opened that up, um, you know, here was all the, the, the entire computer inside the box. So, yeah, he was. How was that uh, actually he, wired? How did the modules fit in? How did it all come together? The the computer is basically it's two in, in two parts. So if you if you undo all the screws uh, around it and then you split it up, uh, split it basically in the middle, and there's two parts of it. Uh, and then the first part um, would contain all the the memories, the the RAM, the um, the rope memory modules would slot into that, and everything to do with the software, the the, the RAM and the memories would be in that one part of the the computer. And then the other part of the computer was probably 90% of that was the digital circuits, the, the, the modules that contained the, the chips and that made up the, the, the processor on the computer. And there was a, uh, the last section on that is just, um, um, interface sort of circuitry that would interface to the rest of the, the spacecraft. And what sort of language did they use for programming this, uh, presumably assembly or something? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was all written in assembler. But um, when they when they started doing like the really really tense uh, uh, math, the the matrix you know multiplications and the you know the really complex mathematical uh, uh, formulas, then assembler you know you could do it in assembler, but you would take an awful long time to do that. So they actually created something, um, uh, an interpreted language. Um, so you would write it as part of the assembler. So you would write assembly instructions, and then you would say, I'm going to start uh, executing this interpreted language. It's just one instruction that says start interpreted language uh, uh, interpreter or whatever. And then you would use different instructions, not assembly language instructions. Now, that first instruction that says start doing the uh, interpreted language thing is actually a call to uh, a subroutine. And the subroutine then goes and reads all the next uh, instructions out of the memory yeah, and it interprets that. It, it does all sorts of complex, uh, uh, you know, floating point math. Um, and when it's done with it, it just returns to the end of that list of interpreted instructions, and then the program just carries on like normal. So you had two languages: the assembly language, and then a much higher interpreted kind of language. Absolutely awesome stuff. Mm. So if so, there's a few. If people wanted to guess into this into assisting here uh, for a start why are you doing this it's what is what is the benefit to humankind in order to be able to do this um well i have to be honest it's uh, for me it's incredibly interesting you know every other week you you make a new discovery and you find something new that nobody's known and it's you know it's it's incre- it's like hacking except it's not illegal you know <laughs> so nobody's going to you know come after you for for uh, cracking that code and uh, you know sort of uh, uh figuring out how these things are working um so you know it it's it's really interesting to work on it but 
I think one of the things that I've, uh, um, and this wasn't the initial sort of idea, but one of the things that I've realized is that, you know, there's a lot to be learned from from the Apollo space program. If you work in any kind of environment where you do projects and you work with customers and you have deadlines and you have meetings and it, all of that happened in the Apollo program and they did it wrong at one point and then they discovered what they did wrong. They fixed it and it was hugely successful after that. So there's a lot to learn uh, from the way that that was done. There's a, there's a reason why they managed to get to the moon and why the Russians couldn't get to the moon. And that's because of the ways the projects was managed and the way the people were communicating, the way they were doing things. So um, that's one of the things that I've, I've, you know, learned quite a lot or found very interesting. And that wasn't something that I initially oh, okay. uh, thought of, that I would learn from that. To be honest, I was not expecting that as an answer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's doing been a wild ride, but, and yeah. whatever. Yeah, but that, yeah, yeah. that is a. I'm, where would I find more information on that on the management side of it? Because now I'm actually interested. Yeah, it's uh, you know I can't out of the first tell you all the the websites, but it's um, literally if you if you start googling for. You know the Apollo guidance computer and uh, MIT and NASA and and you and you get to these repositories where they have all these PDFs with scanned documents. Then you see the meetings. You know you see the minutes of the meetings where the guy said, you know, this is not going to work. You know, so like MIT says we're going to build this computer, and then IBM comes in and says these MIT guys don't have a clue of what a computer works like. They've never built a computer. We are the computer experts. You know, we can build this much much better than they can. And then they come up with a solution, which is actually pretty crappy. <laughs> Sorry. But, uh, and then okay. MIT have to defend their, 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 their position and say, this is a better computer. And in the end, you know, they prevailed and, and the better solution actually, you know, was used. Uh, but, uh, it, it, it's exactly the same today. If you, if you work in that environment, uh, you'll recognize a lot of those things. And it's like, oh, I've been there, done that, seen that. Um, yes. And not always the best choice wins in my previous experience, but okay, there you go. Uh, uh, yep, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Wow, this is a. Mm. So, if people want to help, there's the helping transcode the uh, the scan pages, which I guess anyone can do. Um, mm -hmm. The techies amongst you out there, you will have data uh, data feeds that they can go through and convert to binary. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And anything else that we can do to help? Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's basically it's less than three years before the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. So I'm, I'm pretty sure things are still going to pick up a lot. Uh, lots more, a lot of extra things are probably going to come to the fore. Um, and, and we're going to discover a lot of new things. I was already contacted by people who said, you know, I've got an LVDC and I had to go and Google what is an LVDC. And it was the computer controlling the, the rocket. Um, you know, uh, people who say, yes, I've got this, I've got that. So I think cool. videos like this, you know, it's just going to spark more interest and more things are going to come out and more people are going to open their, their safes and say, okay, I've actually got this software um you can scan it you can you know yeah work exactly with it and, play with. and yeah that's it's going to get quite exciting you know going forward if anything you're increasing the value of what you have by making it public because the code that they're using there exactly. came from my yeah. thing here 
which is uh, that's right, absolutely excellent. Yeah. The the kit that, yeah. you, that you have built, <laughs> crude though it may be, <laughs> um, is that available or is that useful for other people if they had modules or uh, can they build their own or would that be useful? Um, yeah, well, it's. I don't really have a circuit diagram of it at all. Uh, it's. It was like sort of tweak, tweak, tweaks until I got it exactly right. I probably should go back and, you know, measure it out and and do a final version of that. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I can I can probably make the the relay boards. Uh, you know, the the circuits and the and the printed circuit board of that. I can make that available. That's it's it's. Uh, it's not brain surgery to build something like that, but it's actually been pretty useful, and I would probably use it in other projects, you know, in future as well. So it's, um, I, if anybody's interested, I could probably uh, sort of let them have a copy of that circuit diagram and PC board layouts as well. Perfect. Tell me, what is uh, your email address, or how can we contact you? I think, yeah, the the best is to to uh, leave like a message on on YouTube. Um, I can I can probably give my email address. I don't mind people emailing me. You know, uh, I don't always get back immediately the same day, but I, I'll I, I invariably I will always get back to you eventually. Um, uh, but uh, uh, you can just email me um, f uh, Rautenbach. I'm going to spell that. Uh, it's f r a u t e n b a c h at gmail dot com. Perfect, and uh, I'll. Uh put in links to your website uh, or sorry to the YouTube channel and people can derive that uh, that name from there okay is there anything I missed in this at all uh, I think we've pretty much covered it um, I can I can probably <laughs> talk about a lot of these things there's, there's a lot of other interesting things not really related to the computer but um, you know that I think that would be a, a separate talk for for another day uh, as, I think uh, we've pretty much covered. Mm. As you know, this is uh, <laughs> this is me doing my plug, and everybody's going, "Oh, Ken's at it again." But seriously, all you need to do is just record a show, pick a slot, and upload it. This is right up our folks' uh, alley. So if you have anything of that you just want to get off your chest, you send it to us, mm-hmm. or do a YouTube video on it as well. I'm, I'm subscribed. Mm. Will do. <laughs> okay. Francois, thank you very, very much. I'm sorry it took so long to get back to you and do the scheduling last night. I <laughs> We had actually originally planned to do this last night and I completely uh, got sidetracked with the kids stuff we needed to do for the kids. So major apologies no for that. Pro- but thank you very much for doing this. Uh, no problem at all. Again, thanks thanks a lot for, for allowing me to uh, be on your show. Uh, not, at, not at all. Tech rockets spacecraft what more could i ask for all right thanks very much (laughs) okay goodbye okay folks that was it um as you know hbr's community podcast network so tune in tomorrow for another exciting episode of hacker public radio you've been listening to hacker public radio at hackerpublicradio.org We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. 
If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Thank you.